welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Amanda, for being a guest on my podcast. And uh, thanks for your patience with me, too, as I had to run back home and get the recorder. (laughs) Of course. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So you've been on the podcast before, and at that time, we had a particular topic in mind, uh, racism, and um, and now we don't have a particular topic in mind. So I thought we would just kind of catch up and just see what's been on your mind lately. And um, as far as catching up and so forth, do you just want to kind of briefly um, introduce yourself and say who you are? Sure. Um, <laughs> I'm Amanda. I... Grew up in church, um, and I've participated in a handful of different churches in my life. I grew up in a Baptist church, but I've been involved in more non-denominational churches in my adult life. Um, um, I haven't shared this widely or publicly online, but I... um, was married and separated from my husband a few years ago, and I'm divorced now, and that's been really hard to to talk about or to communicate. As I think, especially with religious people, I think we don't have. Um, I feel like the church doesn't have a really great theology for grief and pain and sadness, and I think we could do a lot better job of that. Um, in fact, being completely honest, um, I feel like a few years ago when I was staring down the barrel of a divorce, um, to be honest, I feel like I lost like 50% of my faith and, um, that was really painful and I feel like I've spent the past few years looking, trying to grasp for things that, um, would help me retain my faith um, and belief in a good God who is loving, who loves the world. And um, yeah, I did a lot of searching for that. And actually, there are a lot of really great resources out there, but it's it's not really something that I feel like the church does a good enough job talking about. And I think it's something I think it's something we need to do a better job of. So. Um the church when talking about um, divorce or talking about like uh, grief and sorrow um, are you talking which one are you kind of more referring to Um, just in general the problem of pain and suffering in the world I know um, I know a lot of people who have you know gone through some kind of terrible tragedy in their lives and they leave the church and I kind of don't blame them. I don't think that we set them up for success. Um, I don't think grief and suffering is something that we talk about enough. Yeah. So some kinds of um, suffering is like real visible, like a, and and the church. You see the church really surround people, like a cancer diagnosis or something like that. But then other kinds of suffering is kind of more invisible and um, 
And it's probably really common for, I mean, life is hard. And I just imagine, you know, people are going through their own thing and it's invisible so, so much of the time so that they don't have people surrounding them with encouragement and prayer and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know, like, what... Um, So in your particular situation, or when it comes to, um, you know, divorce and, and things like that, you know, I don't, what is the church's attitude about it, and what do you see um, as a problem with it, or just what are your thoughts about it? I don't even, don't even really know what to ask concerning <laughs> That's okay. It. Um um well I would say um just taking a larger view um you know I remember um I can I can keenly remember being younger maybe in my teens and looking around at um you know many wonderful adults around me who volunteered in church I had so many different Sunday school teachers and volunteers at church and I could tell you know, the people who seem to have the most wisdom in life, the older people who seem to have the most wisdom are the people who've gone through some kind of deep tragedy or suffering and have come out on the other end, um, not bitter and resentful and angry at the world or angry at God, but have, you know, accepted their own sadness and grief and almost become even more compassionate and more loving and caring of other people and their sadness. And I absolutely remember thinking at one time in my life, I hope someday I reach that level of wisdom in the future, but I don't want to go through the grief and the tragedy in order to get there. Um, and I wouldn't say that I'm there at this point in my life, but I feel like I've had my own brush with grief over the past several years, and, you know, I don't want to shake my fist at the sky. Um, in fact, oftentimes I think God is shaking his fist at us, like um, some things that have been um, helpful to me or healing to me are... Um, a lot of stories in the Bible that I wish I wish we could highlight more in church, like um, you know the story of um, when Lazarus dies and Mary is his sister, and um, you know Mary says to Jesus, "If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened." And I absolutely felt like Mary for years. Like, God, where the heck were you? Why weren't you here? Why didn't you fix this? Why didn't you provide the right medication? Why didn't you provide the right psychiatrist? Why didn't you change my husband's heart? Why didn't you fix this marriage? If you would have answered just one of my prayers, just one, God, where were you? Why didn't you do that? And I absolutely felt like that for a long time. Um, and then I heard in um, a sermon once, um, you know, 
how does Jesus respond to Mary? He weeps with her. And it's the shortest verse in the whole Bible, as if the author, like, paused and wanted to make this very clear. Jesus wept. And there's a whole lot more that we could say about the problem of pain and suffering in the world and where it comes from and, you know, how we should view it and and deal with it. Um, But probably the simplest answer that God gives us is that Jesus weeps. And I think that gives us a window into the heart of God and how he looks at our pain and our suffering. And all throughout, um, all throughout the stories of Jesus, wherever someone is in pain, Jesus is there caring and healing and loving. And also, like, not just healing people, but, like, in a way, attacking sin and evil and sadness as if there's this underlying evil outside of us you know that animates evil um and so jesus is healing and jesus is attacking the sadness and so i think that has been a helpful way for me to look at sin and sadness in my life or even other stories in the bible you know like um like the story of Noah when, um, you know, the, the ancient flood story shows up throughout some other ancient cultures, and they all tell the story a little bit differently. But when the Jews tell the story, it's, you know, the, the reason behind the flood is that the world has become so violent. And Genesis says that God is grieved. It grieves the heart of God that there is so much violence in the world. And he washes it all away. But he says, oh, there's this, there's this one person, Noah, this one family that is choosing the good. Like, okay, humans, you are free agents. You are free agents to make your own choices in life. You can choose the good or you can choose the bad. You have the knowledge of good and evil. Everyone is choosing the bad. Everyone is choosing violence right now. Oh, but there's this one family. Maybe I can work with them. Maybe I can work with them to create good in the world again Um, let's wash away all of this evil and sadness and let's start over with this one family so um, you know you were kind of describing how Jesus um, you know weeps and um, God cares and he's attacking the evil and and so there's like this healing type of action going on, and I get the impression that um, Jesus is the initiator of it, and the church is the body of Christ should be doing this work, and um, I'm sure it's going on, you know, in some aspects and so forth. Um, but um, I wonder um, how, you know, we can be more active and involved in healing and um, being there weeping with people um, Mm -hmm. and uh, doing the same work that Jesus was doing then he's doing you know the Holy Spirit's doing through us you have any thoughts about that yeah um, man we I think the church doesn't do that enough because I feel like in our modern Western American church culture, I think 
we don't have a good enough theology for it. Um, and I feel like this will sound weird, but I'll say it out loud anyway. I feel like we're not Jewish enough. I feel like we don't embrace the sadness of the Jewish story and Jewish scripture enough. Like, I feel like we don't have enough sadness in our lives to fully comprehend the heart of God and the story, the Judeo-Christian narrative of the Bible. It, it's almost like our modern American culture is too easy. It's too cushy that, you know, Christianity falls flat on our culture. And some examples. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Judaism for a little bit and, and what I love about it and how I think we need to read the Old Testament more and love it more and embrace it more. Um, so, okay, after Noah, you know, God preserves Noah's family. They can, they can create more good in the world. They can be a light to the world. Okay, but then still the world sort of devolves into more violence and oppression and sadness. I mean, human history tells us that most of human history has been war and poverty and sadness. I mean, around the time of Jesus, um, I think the average lifespan was like 35 years, and basically all women died in childbirth. You know, maybe mm -hmm. after their fourth or fifth child, but basically all women eventually died in childbirth. Like, this is human history. It is very sad. And all throughout human history, you are either the conquered or the conqueror. I mean, that's what human history was. Um, okay, so throughout the Old Testament, there is a lot of sadness. Um, and the ancient Hebrews are enslaved for, I think the Bible says, like 400 years. And the ancient story says that God saw their tears, God heard their cries. And, um, you know, the fact that God chooses a people for himself out of slavery, I feel like this tells us two really important things. Um, one, God isn't like swooping in and fixing everything in our lives. I don't, I don't know how much God is super involved in our day-to-day actions and lives. Um, maybe God has to wait 400 years for someone who's brave enough to step into that sadness and do something. Maybe God has to wait for the right human actor who can stand up to Pharaoh, who can even do it. And maybe in a lot of the sadness and a lot of the tragedies in our culture today, God is waiting for the right Moses to step up and solve that problem. So that's one thing that I think um, the story of Hebrew enslavement tells us. But then secondly, more importantly, I think this shows us so much about the heart of God and what God is like, that when God is scanning the world and he's looking at all of these people groups and he wants to choose a people group for himself that can carry his story to the world and be a blessing to the world and create good in the world 
he chooses a people group that is enslaved. He chooses people not from the top of the ladder. He chooses people at the bottom of the ladder because they are acquainted, well acquainted with grief and suffering. And then, you know, he rescues them from Egypt and then um, throughout, I think like Deuteronomy, you know, God is giving them instructions and he reminds them over and over again, like, remember you were enslaved, take care of the poor, take care of the orphans, take care of the widows, be kind to aliens. And remember, you were once enslaved. And take care of these people. And remember, you were once enslaved. Almost like, remember the grief. Remember where you come from. Remember that, remember that pain that you felt when people were taking advantage of you. And you help other people. You care for them. Remember that pain. And the Jews celebrate Passover every year to get back into that mindset, to remember that. And I feel like Christians should today. I think it would be really beneficial for the church to celebrate Passover yearly. And not in, not in like a Christian sort of way, like, oh, the hard-boiled egg. It means, you know, it comes out of the ashes and it's cooked and it's new life and it's Jesus. Like, I don't think we should celebrate Passover in a super Jesus-y sort of way. I think we should celebrate Passover in a very um, Jewish sort of way, where we recall, okay, you're eating these chopped up apples and nuts, and they remind you of bricks, and slaves building Egypt with bricks, and then they eat these bitter herbs, and it's it's bitter, and you remember the, the bitterness of the pain and the sadness of slavery and then you eat this really strong the most strong horseradish that you can conceive of and it literally makes you cry and you you feel that pain and then of course they're drinking like four glasses of wine because they're celebrating um you know god heard our cries and saw our pain and um you know led us out of slavery and made us his people um but then they also take 10 drops from their glass of wine and they take out 10 drops of wine as a way to remember the 10 plagues in Egypt and how even though we are, we are thankful, we are celebrating, but we can still have some, some grace and some sadness for all the Egyptians who had to die in order for us to even get here. And then they, um, they take this bread and they break it in half and they hide half of it as a way to show, you know, even though we are grateful, we remember our sadness, we are grateful, but there's still a, an incompleteness, that there is still a longing for more, there is still a longing for um, uh, a future hope, a better life um, for our world, for our culture. Um, and I think it'd be amazing if Christians celebrated that and remembered grief. Um, and, and then the Jews say, and we remember slavery wherever it exists today in the world, in whatever form we feel its pain. Um, and slavery can take many different forms, you know, in addictions and such. And so 
Um, and then like the whole Old Testament, like all of Jewish scripture is sad. <laughs> it's all really sad. I mean, and then later they're carried off by the Assyrians and they're carried off by the Babylonians. And then, and then they're longing for a future hope. They're longing. They, they have so much grief and so much pain. And when, oh Lord, are you going to protect us? And when are you going to enact justice? And finally they make it back to Israel. But now they're occupied by the Romans and, um, and, and there's so much longing. And so when Jesus steps on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is here, it's in the midst of you, it really means something to them in a really amazing way that I think we don't get today because we don't have enough grief, enough longing for a better world, and, you know, Christianity is dying out in the West, but it's growing and spreading in the Southern Hemisphere because the hope that Christianity offers, um, the idea of the kingdom of God, it means something to a poor village in Africa. Yes, God, please let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Please, please. We are, we are suffering. We want a more just and beautiful world um, where this sadness is no more, where one day in the future heaven comes to earth and heaven marries earth and, and brings shalom. And I don't think we long for that enough. And so I think it's a little hard for us to, I think it's hard for our culture to understand the whole Judeo-Christian narrative because we don't have enough sadness in our lives so I don't know I think we need to get in touch with this more and I think um, you know to use a, a bad stereotype um, you know there's a stereotype of um, affluent suburban churches aren't very compassionate or aren't maybe as compassionate <laughs> as other Christians and churches, probably because they don't feel enough sadness. They don't have enough grief in their lives. And it's, you know, it's not wrong or evil to have money um, and to lead a good life. But I think if that's your situation in life, you need to find where the grief is and enter into it and be a part of it. Um, I don't think the Judeo-Christian narrative will sink down deep into your heart enough until you are with grief. Um, and there are plenty of ways that you can find grief. I mean, everyone has it, <laughs> and some people more than others. Um, I mean, there are places, there are parts of St. Louis that look like a third world country. There's plenty of grief there, and we can spend time there. So... Um yeah, there and there might be um, grief behind the doors of our middle class neighborhoods too that you know we just don't see. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you have no idea what's going on in people's homes behind closed doors. You just have no idea. There could be all kinds of grief there, and but I feel like we don't have good ways to like. Um, we need to create a safe space in church so that people can talk about it without fear of judgment. 
Um, it's been really hard for me. It was hard for me to share with people what was going on in my home and that I was going through a divorce. In many ways, it was easier to talk to my non-religious friends who were like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're in a safe space now. But I had a whole lot of fear that religious people would say, well, were you praying hard enough? Were you trying hard enough? Um, you know, what do you consider abuse? Like bruises, how many bruises? You know, like asking too many questions rather than just being compassionate. And I, I think that's where a lot of people leave church because they don't feel safe. And, and I can understand that, you know, as Christians, you, we want the best for someone. You know, we have this picture of the ideal. You know, ideally, you, you're, you could heal your marriage. Ideally, you could have this, you know, storybook love story. Um, so I understand why people want that. But also, I think we have to accept sadness that that's just how the world is um and and be with people in their grief rather than asking so many questions or trying to offer so many solutions yeah um we might be kind of um the word that comes to mind is triumphalistic you know um of kind of feeling like we have all the answers and that we um you know, have it all together and stuff like that. And it might make it, um, you know, you were saying, uh, we, uh, but we don't, we still live in the partial, like I've been thinking of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, like the complete hasn't come yet. We still live, you know, it, we still see through a mirror dimly. Uh, we don't have all the answers. And um, we, um, you know, um, don't have it all together and stuff. And that might make it kind of harder for um, people to um, be open and just kind of share where they are and, and things like that. Um, so, um, but the way you were describing the Jewish Passover and stuff like that, like all that help, the horseradish and everything... Yeah. I can really see how that would really um, be like this experience, you know, and something helpful. Um, yeah, I, I think we should start practicing Passover. And I even wonder if, if Christians had been celebrating Passover for the past 2,000 years, maybe slavery would have never come to America. Maybe there would have been enough Christians remembering the pain of slavery that it wouldn't have become a thing, you know? That's just a hypothesis, but I think it's something that we should, we should practice, we should remember. Mm -hmm. and, and also, just, just the very idea that, you know, God chooses a people out of slavery because they are the people, they are maybe the only people who can convey the heart of God to the rest of the world and be a blessing to the world. Um, and I think we need to pick that up. It needs to live in the back of our minds um, that this is how we communicate the heart of God, that he, he loves and that he cares 
and that he's not creating sadness. He's not creating evil in the world. God creates the world good. God creates the world for good. God creates people good. And then he tells Adam and Eve, you know, they have dominion over the world. Like, you are responsible. You be responsible for what happens here. And I think C.S. Lewis writes this picture into the Chronicles of Narnia, where the children, you know, he calls the the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and they are kings and queens. They are kings and queens of Narnia. They are responsible. And so I think in many ways, you know, understandably, um, a lot of people, when they go through tragedy, they end up losing their faith, and they're angry at God and shake their fist at God, like, how can you let this happen? But I think, really, God is looking down at us the, and the church specifically, but all of humans saying, how can you let this happen? Like, you are free agents and you are responsible for what happens here. I think God would say, it's 2023. Why is there still racism in America? Get it together, people. Or why, why does it cost $50,000 to adopt a baby from China? Why is that a thing? I think God looks at us and says, why is that a thing, guys? Get it together. Where is the Moses who can stand up and fix that problem? Where is the Moses who can resolve this grief? Somebody, please go into, understand the whole system and the whole structure behind the adoption system and why it's so expensive. And who can come up with a an affordable, safe, administrative way that we can give babies a safe and and loving home and it not be so expensive. I think God looks at us and says, where is that Moses? What are you guys doing down there? And, And maybe that Moses is one of us, you know? Maybe it's one of your sons or daughters. Maybe it's my son or daughter. And I think we need to create that, um, I think we need to create that sense of adventure and responsibility in our children. Like if I could give any encouragement to Sunday school teachers and parents, you know, let's try to communicate to our children that God is a creator of good and you are made in the image of the divine and you can create good in the world. And and there's like a divine mandate to have dominion over the world and create as much good as you can in it. And you can do battle against the snake, like in the garden, and like Jesus does. You can do battle against sin and death and evil every day for the rest of your life if you go into the medical field, go into the teaching field, go into the nonprofit sector, go into psychology and therapy and social work and public policy and politics, you can do battle against the forces of evil and sadness in the world and you can create good, as much good as you can, and you can be that Moses. So for people who shake their fist at the sky, I think God understands. I think he understands our grief and I think he you know, shakes his fist at us and wonders, what are you guys doing down there? You need to do a better job. We need to do a better job. And I don't think we feel that enough as the church. I don't think we 
pick up that that responsibility enough. I think too many people, there are too many Christian songs about, well, we're going to heaven when we die. And I think too many people feel like, you know, they're just not thinking so much about what happens in this world, what happens in this life. You know, they're just waiting to go to heaven when they die. But, you know, I think the ultimate Christian hope for the future is that heaven comes to earth. Um, and I think the whole idea of that, you know, oh, my, my home is in heaven. I think when Paul says this to, I don't know, is it the Philippians when he talks about, you know, your citizenship is in heaven? Um, N.T. Wright is a Bible scholar who points out that that doesn't mean that, oh, your citizenship is in heaven, that's where you're going to go someday. That what Paul means by that is that your citizenship, your culture is heavenly, and you're here, and you're supposed to bring the culture of heaven to earth. It's your responsibility to bring a heavenly culture here. And I, I don't think we take this seriously enough. Yeah. Um, I guess the church has kind of um, separated and became um, a subculture rather than being connected with the world as um, doctors and professionals and people and kind of, and we, it's it's really, uh, you know, encouraging you know just the the mandate um or i can see how it could stir somebody up and it is stirring the mandate to um make the world better to have dominion and so forth and um it does seem like um it's um something that um a people does you know you mentioned like a Moses and yeah, there are like certain individuals that God uses in ways like a Wilberforce or something. But, um, you know, there's also like, um, just a a people who are plugged in in all kinds of different ways and working together to do something. Um, on an, as far as like your interaction with people, like, has anything changed um, since, you know, you've kind of gone through this experience yourself um, as far as just the way you inter- interact with people? Um, like, um, you know, and just kind of considering other people are going through suffering or whatever, or just anything like that? Um, um. I don't know. Um, I I feel like I'm not. Um, I feel like I'm not naturally a very compassionate person. I don't feel like this is naturally my disposition. I'm very um, book smart, not people smart. I lead with the head over the heart. I'm very task oriented and not people oriented. Um, and but I feel like going through my own grief makes me feel more compassionate. Um, seeing people go through their own life experiences, I feel it deeply, um, more so than maybe I would have in the past. 
And so in a weird way, I'm grateful for that. Um, in fact, funny story, years ago, I was in a, a Bible study group, and I remember telling my Bible study leader, you know, I'm not really good at things like compassion and mercy ministries. I don't think that's my gifting. Do you think I can leave that to other Christians who are better at that? <laughs> and um, my Bible study leader wisely said, no, that's not okay. Um, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a person of compassion. And wherever there is pain in the stories of Jesus, you know, Jesus is there healing and helping and and he has compassion on the crowds. Um, and I thought, I took this criticism very seriously and thought, well, dang, I'm losing at this Christian thing. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about that for many years. And now I, I feel it more deeply now than, um, than I did years ago. And um, there's an, an older woman in the church that I go to currently who, um, you know, I started sharing my story with a few safe people, and they said, oh, you need to talk to this woman in, in our church. And I took her out to lunch, and she was telling me about her grief in her life and how she went through two abusive marriages and two divorces, and then one of her ex-husbands later came back to her house and shot himself in her house with her there and she had to communicate this to her children and I'm so amazed by this woman and she gives me so much hope and strength and courage for the rest of my life that if you can go through like the most terrible things and come out on the other end with more compassion or more strength that's the kind of person that I want to be, you know? Um, and I think, I think this is also an advantage that the Judeo-Christian story has perhaps over other religions or other worldviews. Um, because you know how there's, there's a lot of similarities between Buddhism and Christianity, but, um, you know, where a Buddhist may say, well, our, in order to get rid of sadness and grief, we need to get rid of desire. If you don't desire anything, then you're not sad when you lose it. Um, that's sort of the Buddhist way of looking at it. I hope I'm characterizing that correctly, but someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But in the Judeo-Christian narrative, your grief matters. You don't need to get rid of your desire the things that you love in life, the people that you love. I mean, that, that person or that marriage or that child, whatever you loved and lost matters, and God sees that. And every tear you've ever cried that nobody else saw, God saw it, and God remembers it, and God knows, and God loves you. Um, and I think there's a whole lot of explanatory power. There's a whole lot of psychological power there in the Judeo-Christian story that you don't get in other worldviews. And I feel like we should communicate this more. I think our, our culture really needs it. Yeah. But maybe 
You have to experience it and feel it in order to communicate it, in order to love the world and heal the sadness. And maybe that's why God chooses a people out of slavery and says, help the widow, help the orphan, help the poor, be kind to the alien. And remember, you were once enslaved, that you were those people feeling grief. You have the ability to share the heart of God and help and heal and comfort. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so, um, so you were talking about retaining your faith, um, working at that, and um, I guess one question is, and you've talked about this some already, but like, um, well, why retain your faith? What is it about the Christian faith? Um, so, you know, just in talking with you, the beauty of the Christian faith just comes through, you know, the way you're describing it. So I, it seems like there's that aspect. And then um, for me, sometimes, like, that's a real strong aspect for me, just the beauty of the Christian faith. But sometimes I wonder, does there need to be more? And there is more, but I'm always kind of wrestling with, um, you know, the, uh, you know what is right to believe and um and is there just um something about the christian faith that just makes it morally right to believe it as in like well it's just morally right to um choose the thing that has the most hope in it or something along those lines you know and um and whether it's true or it's not true um you know, there's an obligation just to go with the best, you know. But um, what are your thoughts about that, like, you know, why Christianity for you? Um, and uh, so you have any thoughts? Um, well, I think we live in a moral world. Um, we have the knowledge of good and evil. I think we are all moral creatures, um, and, you know, if, if we take a very materialistic, atheist view, I think it's hard to see the world as, it, it's hard to see the world in terms of right and wrong or good and evil if we're all just, you know, as Richard Dawkins would say, we're stardust, you know, we're just organic matter made from stars, um, I, there's a famous quote from Richard Dawkins that I, I won't be able to quote off the top of my head, but that that there is no good or evil in the universe. There is just blind, pitiless indifference, which I think is terribly bleak and depressing. And I, I don't know why why you would want to have that depressing worldview, whereas the Judeo-Christian narrative says... You know, the world wasn't meant to be like this. And deep down in our heart of hearts, we feel deeply that the world was not meant to be this way. There, there's a longing for something better. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of explanatory power in the, the ancient Genesis stories of how 
God created the world for good and people for good, um, but also with the knowledge of good and evil. And so we have a great capacity for both. And throughout human history, um, people choose the bad a lot. And I, um, tr- I try to explain this at very, in very small childlike terms to my, my small children. And I use the phrases, the good and the bad. You can choose the good. You can choose the bad. You make a thousand choices on a daily basis. What are you going to choose? You can be like Adam and Eve. You can listen to the voice of God and choose the good, or you can listen to that snake in the garden and choose the bad, and what are you going to do? Um, So I think there's a lot of explanatory power in this story, even if you don't take it literally. I mean, some people take the story very literally, and some people take it metaphorically. It really doesn't matter to me. Either way, there is a whole lot of explanatory power in this story. Um, And it shows that God is not the creator of sadness and evil in the world. I know a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, there are some Christian songs and things that we say that kind of make it sound like this is God's purpose for you. And I, and I, I don't think that that's helpful. I don't think that's a helpful way to look at sadness. Like, <laughs> there is a particular song on Christian radio that says something like, God is writing your story. And that was so hurtful to me over the past few years. The offensive even, that... If God is writing my story, I wish he would stop. If that's how it is, I could think of a thousand better stories to be writing right now. Why would God write this story? And I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's good to say, I don't think it's accurate to say that God is the creator or the initiator of sadness or evil. God is the creator of good and we do a lot of evil to each other. Humans do. And also, you know, the Bible gives this picture of a spiritual realm. And, um, you know, some, okay, I'll be honest. Some days I think the idea of angels and demons is like really spooky and mythological. And I don't believe in angels and demons. But on other days, I love the idea of angels and demons. And I'll tell you why. So, again, in the ancient Jewish scripture, it's the the idea of angels and demons conveys that not only are we humans free agents that can make choices, and we often choose the bad, but also there are other agents in the spiritual realm who can also choose the good or the bad. And, you know, I forget how the story goes, like a third of the angels choose the bad and they fall away. And now there's this spiritual evil in the world that somehow animates evil. And I know some people will think this sounds really weird and spooky. Like this does not... This does not fall on our modern ears very well, understandably. But I love the idea that there, that there is spiritual evil because I think it gives us 
It gives us an opportunity to feel some compassion for people, even when they are choosing the evil thing. Like when Nazism moves throughout Germany, it's not just that people are evil and they are choosing to be Nazis. But there's explanatory power in the idea of spiritual evil as if there is this spirit moving throughout Germany that is motivating people, animating evil somehow, and that um, in the story of Jesus, you know, he's not just loving people and healing people, but he is attacking evil. And, um, you know, I think some other Christian denominations do a better job of explaining this. I found a lot of help and healing from reading um, some Anglican ministers who talk about this better than we do, maybe in American Christianity, um, that Jesus is attacking evil. And, you know, there's this brief story in the Gospels of how Jesus is binding the strong man. Um, I'm not the best at explaining it, but I think there's there's a lot of explanatory power in this, and I think it brings a lot of hope and healing. And I think deep down we we feel that the world should not be this way, and that um, there should be justice when things are evil, and 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 we should have a better world, and we long for it. And I think Christianity provides a lot of hope for that. So, um, yeah, so I can see, uh, follow along that way of thinking and agree with you, but I also kind of um, just think of like some of the things I've gone through and I, the way I think of it in my mind is like, well, God was really dragging me through hell and back, you know, <laughs> and I kind of, I'm not necessarily saying that in a negative way, I'm kind of see how like, that's just how hard headed I am that to change me and to um, make me grow, make me see, um, you know, that, you know, it just takes some extreme measures. And um, and in the f- first few chapters of Genesis, after the fall, there is, um, you know, the pronouncement to the woman, you're going to have like this anguish and raising up children and to the man, um, the ground's going to be cursed and you're going to live in toil and I've kind of thought of that as not so much as punishment but rather like you need suffering now because um you know um it's it's for you um and it takes this type of thing just to get you to look to me perhaps and um so in, in that sense, it's not, I don't know if that's saying that, um, you know, God is um, creating evil, um, but it's almost like um, because of where we fall into, you know, it, it may not be the best thing for us just for everything to go smoothly, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Um. Yeah, um, 
like you said, we we shouldn't say that God is the creator of evil or or the creator of sadness, um, and and that maybe God can use those things in your life um, for for good. Um, but also, I, I think it can be. I, I don't know. I think we have to be careful about how we characterize that to someone who's going through grief. Um, I don't think it's helpful to say like. Well, God created this hard thing in your life <laughs> mm-hmm. to teach you something. Um, I don't know, and 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 maybe that's true, or, or maybe if that, um, you know, if if that's meaningful to you, then that's good. But I think we have to be careful about how we, you know, say that to other people. And sure, and you know, yeah. even I, I think the Apostle Paul says that even nature is enslaved to death and decay, and it's. Um, you know, it's not just us that feels sadness and death and decay, but even nature feels it. Um, which I, I think explains part of the problem of pain. Um, you know, part of the problem of suffering is, um, you know, humans create a lot of evil and sadness in the world, but then there's also natural disasters. And how do you explain that? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you explain that sadness? Um, but. I mean, Paul says that even nature is somehow fallen, that even nature is somehow enslaved to death and decay and plate tectonics and volcanoes and, you know, and and people die from those things and it's sad. (laughs) So, it's just another way that people kind of point their finger at God, like, well, did you have to create that volcano? And I, I don't know, we're all, we're all fallen, even nature somehow Hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts about communic- communicating Christianity to, um, to others? Like, it seems like people, because I guess of our na- national background, you know, people tend to identify, especially in the Midwest, I guess, a lot of people identify with Christianity somewhat, like um, believing in God, perhaps, or kind of like being okay with Christianity somewhat, maybe not being a churchgoer, but just, um, but just so like, um, not, you know, like it doesn't make any difference though, you know, (laughs) and, um, it's, I'm just, I just kind of wonder about, um, you know, how to just show the beauty of it and so forth. And, um, there's, um, I forgot his name, but he, I've uh, listened to him on podcasts and stuff before. And he's, um, he used to be evangelical, but now he's uh, Eastern Orthodox and he's an icon carver. I think I know who you're talking about. Okay, um, yeah, a French guy? Jonathan Pajot. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And he talks about how um, rather than trying to reason people into the faith, he tries to show them the beauty of it. And he's an artist, so I guess mm-hmm. that helps for him. But um, I just, um, do you have any, um, you know, I just kind of wonder how to communicate it. Because I'm not very good with communicating things with words, I don't think. And um, it just seems like people are so apathetic. I guess that's the word, you know, by Christianity. Like, okay, well, maybe so, maybe not. But I don't really care a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, well, I don't. I think I have any 
good answers. I don't think I'm good at that either. But yeah, he, um, I think beauty is a really wonderful way to convey Mm -hmm. um, the heart of God and belief in God and the desire for, um, um, for ultimate love and beauty and justice. Um, I think beauty and art does that in a really great way. Also, I'm, um, um, when I was in college, I studied the humanities, literature, mm-hmm. poetry, yeah. history, and philosophy. Um, there, there are some other humanities that I didn't study. But I think literature and poetry, especially, I feel like, um, share the heart of God. Um, and, and I think poets and artists and musicians often do this better than... Um, reasoning people into um, belief in God. In fact, I think a lot of songs today, um, secular songs, like, um, you know, back in the 80s when Tracy Chapman sang Fast Car, You Got a Fast Car, I Got a, I got a Ticket and Want to Get Out of Here, something like that. Hmm. Um that is the saddest song ever written, and I feel like um, Jesus could have written that song. It's so sad, and I think Jesus loves Tracy Chapman. And there are other songs that, I mean, a lot of music, if, I'm, if, if you listen to any non-Christian music, is, is really sad. And I think God has a lot of love for those people, and I think God wants us to hear their sadness and love them and I think the church could do a better job of that and I think um, I think everyone I think most people in our culture really respect when we help the poor you know people have a lot of different opinions about religion about God about you know what is morality people have a lot of different opinions but everyone raises their eyebrows when you help the poor. And I don't think we do that enough. And actually we have, we have a huge nonprofit sector in America and I'm, I work in the nonprofit sector and I'm so grateful for this and it, and it's wonderful. And I think it comes from our Judeo Christian background. In fact, I once had this Saudi Arabian family over to my home for dinner and I wanted to try to make them the most American dinner that I could think of. <laughs> and I baked a turkey and made sweet potatoes. Um, I, I don't know what is the most American dinner, but I, I cooked this for them, and um, they were so lovely, and I was asking them, is there anything about American culture that kind of surprised you that's really different from Saudi Arabia? And they said, you guys have a lot of, like, charities and volunteerism in America. And they said, we do not have that in Saudi Arabia. And I thought, hmm, okay. (laughs) So I think that's something that we, that is really wonderful in our culture. And I think um, Christians should be more involved. And I think any church worth its salt should have a tangible presence in its community. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, we lose a lot of credibility in our American culture when we're not 
doing something tangible that really helps the community, the poor, people in need. We lose so much credibility. But really, I mean, if you read um, history, a lot of these things grow out of Judeo-Christian culture. Um, If you read the historian Tom Holland wrote the book Dominion, Mm -hmm. um, is maybe the best book I've ever read. It's like Mm. 600 pages of Christian history. Mm -hmm. And Tom Holland is a historian of antiquity, um, and he's not religious. He makes it very clear in his book, and he's been interviewed on lots of different podcasts. Um, Lots of people have interviewed him. He makes very clear. He's not religious. He has no dog in this fight. He's not just like trying to prop up Christianity or Judaism, but he spends 600 pages explaining why all all of these things in our culture, like hospitals and orphanages and our nonprofit sector, grows out of um, a Judeo-Christian history and, and very specifically the ancient Jewish idea that humans are created in the image of God, in the image of the divine, and that humans have inherent worth and dignity and that this is where, that this is the seedbed from whence all of our ideas about human rights come from. And, and Tom Holland will say, the, the idea of human rights is a belief system. We don't mm. want to admit that it's a belief system, but it's mm-hmm. a belief system that throughout most of human history, humans did not believe in human rights. Mm-hmm. Throughout most of human history. <laughs> and, but we've arrived at this in our culture because of, our, because of this very ancient Jewish idea that humans are made in the image of the divine. I forget where we were going with that, but I think Mm -hmm. that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was hearing someone else tell me about that, and I wanted to kind of look into it myself. So I didn't read uh, Tom Holland, but I thought, well, who could I read that's kind of like pre-Christian and talks, you know, about life and so forth? So I've read... I looked into like Hellenistic writing, and I read uh, Cicero. I didn't complete it, but I just started read some of it. It was his book um, called "On Duties," like you know, what do you have responsibility to do? And I was re- really impressed. And I since then have realized that um, a lot of people in church history have you know enjoyed Hellenistic writing and have been impressed with him too because he's very uh, into. Um, um, you know, a morally excellent life and everything. And I thought, this sounds so good, and it's pre-Christian. But um, the thing is, when I started, what I saw as a contrast was when he talked about the love that you are to give to other people, it was um, measured out depending on them. And if they're an excellent person, you give them a lot of love, but they're kind of like a lower person in society. They don't deserve that much love. They just deserve, you know, uh, an appropriate amount, a smaller amount. And, um, and that was contrasted with Christianity, um, with, you know, you love the least of these and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it's almost like an upside down triangle where if you think you are great in the kingdom, you will be a servant. 
In fact, Jesus says, you know, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you will be a slave to all. Mm-hmm. And that's a Bible study that we never have. <laughs> How are you being a slave to all this week? Are you doing that? Are you following Jesus in that way? We never talk about that. But mm-hmm. yeah, that God loves the least of these and that God chooses the slaves to be his people. Um, yeah, very, very different from ancient Greco-Roman culture. And then, you know, concerning like meeting needs, um, you know, we're in a pretty affluent um, society. And um, fortunately, like um, not a lot of people are starving like in third world countries and so forth. But I just wonder like if we should be, um, when we think about needs, if, you know, we should be expanding our thoughts about that. Um, like, um, can people have all the physical provision to to live life and yet still be needy in um, loneliness or in um, this, you know, this way or that way? I'm not sure, but I'm just kind of, you know, wondering sometimes when it comes, I know there are people with, you know, uh, struggling with material things, but um, I don't know. It seems like a lot of people are not, you know, it seems like a lot of people just have, you know, we just have so much stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, I don't know, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, the problem of poverty and what is our responsibility to the poor and, and poverty and how, how much should we care? How much w- should we give? I don't know. That's a really, you know, moral and philosophical question that I think we all have to ask ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, um, well, very quickly, I'll tell you, um, years ago, I had the opportunity to spend a summer in India and people are incredibly poor in mm-hmm. India um, and there I remember there's a street in New Delhi where it seemed like a thousand people are lined up and people are missing arms and legs people are missing eyeballs and they just stand on the street every day completely at the mercy of passersby to you know drop a few pennies in front of them and this was so incredibly sad like how do you where do you even begin? Like, how do you, how do you help people? Um, but wonderfully, there are so many. I love nonprofits and charities. I love the nonprofit sector who can look at um, can. Um, they have the expertise to look at the larger issues, like how can how can we help India? How can we help people? Um, of course, you can. You know give a few pennies to people like you can give a man a fish or you can teach a man how to fish mm-hmm. or you can look at a village and wonder why is this pond you know filled with scum and all the fish are dying you know how how do we help how do we help this pond how do we help the ecological system so that there are healthy fish so that you can fish you know we all have a place mm-hmm. we all have a place to play whether you're yeah. giving someone a fish or teaching them how to fish or keeping the pond clean and safe you know mm-hmm. Um, but how how do each individual, each one of us, you know, how, how do we know where, where we fit into that story and what our purpose is? 
I don't know, we spend the rest of our lives thinking about that and doing our best, I think. So, um, there's one thing kind of, well, since you, you have a background in humanities, I want to get, I'm not really well read in classic books. So before we go, I want to ask you just for some, any book suggestions, if you might have that next year, I want to start reading some classic things, but, um, before that, is there just anything else that we should bring up to talk about? Just anything else that's been on your mind? You know, you've, you mentioned you've been journaling lately and so forth. Um, I don't know. I, I journal a lot about, um, you know, how I, how I imagine God approaches us in our lives and... I imagine God approaches sadness, and I notice it throughout the Bible now. Um, so I journal about that a lot and and meditate on that so that I can think about how to approach other people. And I think um, oftentimes we can be too judgmental, um, and I think um, the world would be a, a much, you know, healthier and safer place if we could all show more kindness and try to embody the heart of God in this world um, and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I, I think we say that a lot, but we don't do it or we don't really understand what Jesus means by that. And um, um, some books on my reading list are, um, there are several books about the things that we misunderstand or that we get wrong in Western Christianity simply because we're not Jewish. <laughs> and I, and um, those are books on my reading list. Um, N.T. Wright specifically is probably the world's leading scholar in first century Judaism. And he um, often communicates how... Um, you know, just what we miss in Christianity because we're not Jewish. You know, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and his followers and his listeners are Jewish, and he's answering Jewish questions and issues. And because we don't, um, you know, we're not first century Jews, and so many of the things that Jesus is trying to explain about the kingdom of God, um, about judgment, about the strong man, I, I think falls flat on our ears. And so that's on my reading list. Um, if I could point out some classic literature, I love the story of Jane Eyre. If you've ever read that, it's really sad. And I love the story of Frankenstein. Hmm. Um, okay. I remember I read Frankenstein out loud because it's just so poetic hmm. and it's, it's really sad because Fra Dr. Frankenstein, you know, creates a monster. He doesn't mean to create a monster. He's trying to create another human, but it's, um, but he's a monster and he just wants to be a human with other people. He wants friends, he wants community, but everyone is scared of him. And so he's like trying to find someone who will love him and everyone's scared of him. And it's so sad. <laughs> Yeah. So those are stories that I like. Yeah. Well, Amanda, it's been really good to talk with you. Um, 
is there any do you want people to follow you anyway do you blog or anything like that or no i've no. thought about blogging but i can't imagine who would read it <laughs> maybe i will someday yeah well thanks i appreciate the conversation thanks so much will mm-hmm.